Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. The Blame Game, week three. Let's review just for a few moments before we get into today's teaching. The first week of this series was about assigning blame to others. That when you blame someone else, you give them the power over your life. And if you give them the power over your life by assigning them blame, then you also assign them the power to fix your life. And how many of you know only God can fix you? Amen? Then the second week was about self-blame. That if Satan can't get you to blame someone else, he will settle for you blaming yourself. And the guilt of yesterday's mistakes is what keeps some people from moving forward in their walk with God. Judas allowed the guilt of yesterday's mistake choked the life right out of him. Literally, it choked the life out of him. And we must realize that Jesus paid for the sin and he paid for the guilt of all of our mistakes. Jesus, as we learned last week, was our sin offering and he was our guilt offering. Jesus takes the blame for us. Amen? So I'm going to show my age here, and um, some of you are going to do the same. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was this Saturday night live sketch that featured Dana Carvey as the church lady. Anybody remember the church lady? Yeah? Okay. There must be a younger crowd in our second service. Yeah. There was a lot of people in the first service. Let me tell you about the church lady. The church lady was an uptight, she was a, a pious host of a talk show called Church Chat. And on that show, um, they would have real famous people come on the show, uh, kind of to make fun of themselves. Most of these people had some bad PR. Uh, maybe they had made a mistake. They had done something, and, and it was public knowledge. And so to kind of soften the blow, they would come on this show, make fun of themselves a little bit. And so she would have these famous people come on the show. It's all, all a comedy sketch. And during that, she would expose the sins, the mistakes of her guests. And then she would look at them with this sinister look on her face and she would say something like this, I wonder who made you do that. Could it be? There it is. Some of the younger ones in the room are like, what is happening right now? What is this? And if you remember, uh, at one point they started putting like an echo on it. So when she said Satan, it would just ring out and it just, it just had this real sinister feel to it. On September 1st, 1969, comedian Flip Wilson introduced the world to Geraldine. How many of you remember Geraldine? Okay. In a stand-up routine, Flip Wilson dressed up and took on the persona of a preacher's wife by the name of Geraldine Jones. In the comedy bit, Geraldine was explaining to her very unhappy husband why she went and bought an expensive dress. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it was the third dress that week that she had bought. And, and in trying to explain this to her angry husband, Geraldine explains how the devil followed her down the sidewalk. Like she's just walking down the sidewalk, minding her own business, but the devil was following her and, and the devil starts throwing compliments her way, starts talking about how good she looks and starts flattering her. And, and then he, he convinces her to stop in front of, of a window and, and look at this dress through the window. And then the, the devil eventually coerced her into going into the store and eventually buying the dress. And I think even signing her husband's name to the check uh, to make it look like he bought the dress. Geraldine coined this phrase, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Man, we've all thought it. We've all 
probably said it at some time. The devil made me do it. However, as creative as the comedy sketch was, Flip Wilson was not the first one to use this phrase. It was actually said first 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. And not verbatim, but something close to it. The devil made me do it. Now, I want to turn our attention to where blame all began. We have alluded to these verses throughout this series. I felt like today was that, that right day for us to go back to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3 today, and we're going to see where this blame thing started. Like I said, we've talked about it, but I want to point something out to you out of these, these verses of Scripture in our text today. So Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start with verses 7 through 9, and then we'll jump down. Genesis chapter 2. And verse 7 it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's go down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now let's go down to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I heard, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, Who is this that, what, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. I want to bring your attention to those last two words there. I ate. Will you say those two words with me? I ate. Those are our key words today. I ate. Now, before we go any further with the sermon today, I, I need to give a disclaimer out there. And I want everyone that is 18 years of age, better, matter of fact, 21 years of age and younger, I want you to listen close to me, okay? Because it's I need to throw a serious disclaimer out there with the content that I'm about to share. If not, your parents are going to be emailing me, and, and I need to make sure that everybody's on the same page and everybody understands the direction that this is going. So, especially to our minors in the room, listen close to what pastor is telling you right now. 
I try my best to be a very transparent pastor. Um, if there's anything that people have complimented me on, it's my transparency that I am willing to share the good, the bad, and the ugly with you, uh, which includes the mistakes of my life. And what I'm about to share with you is a serious mistake that I made in my life. It's not meant to be prideful, uh, although it is comical at times. Um, it, it is only comical because I avoided the true dangers of what was really happening in my life at the time. And so it's not meant to be prideful. As a matter of fact, it was extremely careless. The life that I lived prior to my relationship with Jesus Christ, prior to my conversion, is not something that I am proud of. And I could have hurt myself, I could have hurt others, I could have killed myself, and maybe even killed others. And it's only by God's grace that I didn't do something that landed me in jail for many years. And so with that said, I want you to learn from my mistakes and enjoy the mishaps of my life, but do not repeat them. Amen? Okay. Long disclaimer, but it's worth it. Trust me. The year was 1989. I was 14 years old. It was the summer before 10th grade. I probably had a mullet. It's okay. That wasn't the tragedy. That was awesome. Yeah. A friend of mine who was also a PK. How many of you know what a PK is? Pastor's kid. Preacher's kid. That was me. I, I was the PK. He was also a PK. I was 14. He was older than me. He was 18. We were good friends. He played guitar. I played drums. And uh, so he called me and he said, hey, my parents are going to be out of town. He said, uh, why don't you pack up your drums and, and come on over here to Live Oak? We lived in Lake City. He said, why don't you come on over to Live Oak and um, we'll set up in, in mom and dad's living room and we can just jam out, man. We'll, we'll learn a bunch of Guns N' Roses songs and we'll just, we'll just rock out. And, um, and so we did, he came over in his little Nissan pickup and we loaded up the, my drums in the back of, of his, of his truck. And we went back to Livo. We set up right there in his mom and dad's living room, which by the way, they lived in the parsonage that belonged to the church right next door to the church. And what I'm ashamed to tell you is that during that week, there was a lot of underage drinking that was happening in the church parsonage. Yeah, it, it's bad. I'm telling you, this is kids do not do this stuff. Uh, I'm, I, I, again, it's a little comical at times, but it's not. Um, there's real dangers involved with this. And so we, we were there that week and just partying in his house and playing lots of rock and roll. And, and that was life for us. The next week, his parents were back in town. So we moved the drums to the bedroom. We couldn't play as much because his mom and dad were now home and, and his mom was a stay at home mom. And so now we had to get outside of the house and, and start having some fun outside of the house. And we did, we took our party, uh, to the streets and, there was this, the, this one particular Friday night. It was the last Friday night that, that I was going to be in Live Oak before I would go back home. So it was my last weekend. We needed one last hoorah because, I mean, we are rock stars, right? And rock stars party, and this is what we're going to do. And so he asked his mom if he could borrow her brand new car. She had a brand new Buick. And, um, and so we, we put a cooler in the back of his mom's car, and we put probably three or four cases of beer on ice in the back of that car, all of us underage. And, and we began riding the streets of Live Oak that night. And we found ourselves down this dirt road and no cars. And we are just standing around on this dirt road surrounding his mom's car. I think there's, there's about five of us there. It was, it was uh, him, his girlfriend, his little brother. First time his little brother ever got to go out with us and me and another guy that played bass guitar um, in our little garage band that we had. Um, 
or bedroom band that we had, whatever it is. So we, we were on this road and we're all drinking a lot. And as we would, you know, just, just down a beer, we would crush the can and just throw it in the road. Um, had, had no conscience of being litter bugs at all. We were just throwing beer cans all over the place. And that's when we looked up and coming down this long dirt road were headlights. And, uh, and so we decided that we would get inside the car, just leave the beer cans laying out all over the road. We jumped inside the car. And, and as the car got closer, I started noticing these, these red and blue bubbles on top of the car. It was a cop. It was a, a Swanee County Sheriff's deputy. And he pulls up and he parks right in front of the car. And he comes over to the driver's side window. My friend who was 18 was, was in the driver's seat. And um, he says, can I see your driver's license? And um, he take, hands his driver's license. He says, are these your beer cans? And we said, nope. And uh, he, he knew they were our beer cans, but we just denied it. Um, and so he takes the driver's license. He goes back to the car. He does whatever they do with the driver's license. They come back to the car, and uh, he hands the, the driver's license back to my friend. And he said, um, I want you guys to be careful tonight. Why don't, why don't you go back home? Yes, sir, Mr. Officer, we'll do that. He starts to walk away to get back in his car, and he, my friend starts rolling up the window, and... The cop stops in his tracks. He turns around and he says, hey, do you mind if I look in the trunk? Now, if he looks in this trunk, we're probably going to jail. My friend said, sure, no problem. He rolls at the window. He throws me the keys. He said, take the, the, the key that opens the trunk off. Now, for those of you that are younger in the room, at that time, we had two keys to every car. You had one that started the car in the ignition. We didn't push buttons to start the car. No, we actually had to turn a key. And then we had another key that was usually round on the end that we would stick in and unlock the car or unlock the trunk. So I'm trying to get the key off because we're just going to say, hey, this is his mom's car. We don't have the key to the trunk. Sorry, Mr. Officer. And as I'm trying to get the key off, I hear a mag flashlight, a mag light, banging on my window and he's looking in watching me take the key off and he said get out of the car with the keys uh, so I get out of the car and I walk around to the trunk and I open the trunk and there's this cooler full of beer filling up this trunk he said so this, these beer cans they're not yours right nope <laughs> he then goes around and he gets his cop car and he's going to pull around and he said y'all are going to help me load this up in my car and as he's going walking to his car we start taking beer and just chunking them into the woods we are throwing them under the spare tire we are trying to salvage this was an expensive bust is what it was at least for us you know i mean it wasn't like a million dollar drug bust but this was you know hard-earned money you know and so we are we're putting, putting it under the spare tire. We're throwing it in the woods, and he pulls around. We probably salvaged about a case and a half of beer, throwing it into the woods. And he pulls around. He pops the trunk. He makes us lift up the cooler, puts it in the back of his trunk. And he says, now y'all go home. And he shuts the trunk, and he pulls off. And I'm thinking, what are you doing with our beer, you know? <laughs> it's a little sketchy. I know it is. I'm sure he got in trouble for this later because there was a second bust. That's right. We were dumb enough to stay out on the roads. 
And we were riding around Live Oak, and, and my friend, his girlfriend, and his little brother, they, they had to go relieve themselves. And so we pulled up behind his dad's church, and, and the, the pastor's son, he had a key to the back door of the church so that he could let them go in and use the restroom. Note to self, do not give PKs keys to the church. Never give PKs keys to the church. Because that's where I learned how to play Def Leppard on the drum kit, was in the church when my dad was not around. I just had my boombox blaring and, you know, yeah. I, matter of fact, I should probably not be, be up on the stage. I'm probably just not qualified to do this, right? So they go inside the church. Me and another guy are, are, are sitting and, in in, you know, standing by the, the car with the, the beer in the back. And um, there's a cop that pulled someone over out on the main highway, and he looks over, and he sees our car parked behind the church, thinks it's sketchy. And next thing I know, there are five or six Swanee County deputies that are flying into this church parking lot surrounding us. And what I failed to tell you is that that day they had just resurfaced the church parking lot that these cars came flying over the top of. And they surround us. They look in the trunk. They find more beer. And that's when we go to jail. At 14 years old, I spent my first and only night in jail. Only night, I will say. That, but I did. I spent a night in jail when I was 14 years old. 14 and a half, but who's counting? And so um, that, was, that was one experience of that night. The worst experience of that night was actually the next morning when Jack and Becky McKinley had to drive from Perry to get me out of jail and um, the ride home, we're riding in mom's Cadillac. And um, I remember my dad didn't say much. He's just driving. He's disappointed in me. My mom, on the other hand, as I'm sitting in the back seat of her Cadillac, my mom has her arm propped up towards dad in the passenger seat. And mom would turn around and she would say things like this. She would say, I told you that we would trust you until you gave us a reason not to trust you. And she had for the last four or five years of my life. My mom had consistently preached that to me. We'll trust you until you give us a reason not to trust you. And so she would just lay into me. Now we can't trust you. And she just starts, just, just you were the one. You, all of your brothers, you know, they've disappointed us, but you're the one. We had hopes for you. You were the one that was going to go to college. You're, and I'm like, what's happening right now and then she would run out of words and she would just turn back around and i'd be like let's just get to perry and then she would crank back up again i told you and she would lay back into me and for that whole ride from live oak to perry mom is just blessing me out and i remember that you know obviously i got in, into some serious trouble and i remember that night when everything had calmed down and i'm laying in my bed and i thought to myself man the devil made me do it. The devil made me do that. Why, why did the devil make me do this? And at 14 years old, I have one of the greatest revelations of my life. It's a revelation that many adults, Christian adults, still have yet to realize. The devil didn't make me do it. I made me do it. It was my choice. The, the enemy laid a trap out there before me. He put a temptation out there. There was peer pressure involved. And, and to be honest with you, it was something that I had been doing since 12 years old. My brothers introduced me to alcohol in the first place. And so from, from 12 to 14, this was my life. And, and, and now I'm busted and, and there's consequences for it. And, and I had this revelation in this moment that 
The devil didn't make me do it. Rocky, you were responsible for your actions. You're responsible for your life. And it was an eye-opening and an awakening moment for me. And if you know my story, at 15 years old, when I gave my heart to Christ, it, it completely changed everything. Christ changed everything about my life. But I have to look back on that night and realize the revelation that took place with me laying in my bed and thinking to myself, the devil didn't make me do this. Rocky, you're, you're an idiot. You did this. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we know that they both started passing the blame. We've covered this already, where, where Adam says, God, it's the woman that you gave me. So he points at her and him. It, it's your fault, God. And then when, when he said, Eve, what have you done? What, what did you do? She said, the serpent deceived me. In other words, the devil made me do it. The devil was the one that, that, that made me make this mistake. But I love those two words that are included in God's word, I ate. Because you can point the blame at Satan all you want to, but ultimately, it's your decision on whether or not you fall into his trap, whether you fall for his schemes. This responsibility is on us. Now understand, I, I know that last week was about not feeling the guilt of our past mistakes. This is, is preventive maintenance for us. How do we not make the same mistake again? Or how do we avoid future mistakes? It, it's by understanding that that responsibility falls on us. We don't get to stand before God on, on the day of judgment and say, the devil made me do it. No, the, the devil may have deceived you. He may have tricked you. He may have put the temptation before you. But the devil didn't make you do it. He doesn't have that ability. So with what I'm about to say, I, I am in no way advocating that Satan has gotten an unfair bad rap. That's not what I'm saying. He, he deserves his bad reputation. Um, uh, God's word makes it very plain about who he is and what he does. First Peter 5 and 8, for instance, tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Then we go to John chapter 10 and verse 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And then John chapter 8 and verse 44 says that he, being Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is who Satan is. Satan is the complete opposite of your heavenly father. If God is love, Satan is hate. Satan is the anti-Christ. He is against Christ. He is against the kingdom of God. And he will do whatever he can to persuade you to help destroy the kingdom of God. He is the miserable enemy of our souls and he wants to drag as many of us as he can to eternal punishment with him. He knows his fate. He knows that his days are numbered and all he's trying to do is, is build the population around him. That's why he tries to deceive us. That's why he tricks us. That's why he puts the temptations in our lives. And so with this sermon, I'm not suggesting that he is not responsible for evil in the world. He is responsible for every ounce of evil on this planet. But I do, however, want to put into perspective what Satan can and what he cannot do. Because so many Christians are blinded by this. They don't understand what Satan can and can't do. 
In our minds, we have created Satan to have the same divine attributes of God. Think about it. When we look at Satan, we, we tend to think of him in a way that, that almost makes him godlike. We know that, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, down from the Father of lights. We understand that. So everything good that happens in our lives as believers, we know that is a blessing of God. And so quite the opposite of that, the other end of that spectrum is if anything bad happens in our life, we immediately want to blame the enemy for it. But what happens to the responsibility of the decisions that we make to put ourselves in these situations? I I, want to submit to you today that we give too much credit to Satan. We give him more power than what he deserves. There is only one omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent being, and he is our heavenly father. There is none other. God alone is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and he is the only one that can be everywhere at once. But when we think about Satan, we want to assign those attributes to him. Understand, Satan is a created being. He was created by God Almighty. The Bible tells us that he was created as the worship leader of heaven. He actually had musical instruments built within him. And I'll I'll tell you this, I think that we are built much like him because we've got our vocal cords, we've got the string instruments, we've got percussion. We, We are created a lot like Satan was created to worship God. But because of his pride and his rebellion against God, he was kicked out of heaven, him and a third of the angels. And and, and so he is a created being. He does not know all. He is not all powerful. And he certainly is not everywhere at once. But I do understand that there's a third of the angels that he has enlisted, his demons, if you will, that work on his behalf. But Satan is not always lurking and following your every move. Certainly he will at times, but Satan is not all powerful and he's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent. And, and, and take for instance, like in Job's case in the Old Testament, Job, the story of Job, when Satan came before God, with, with the sons of God, when the angels were passing by to give an account to God, the Bible says that he jumps in line with them. And as he passes by, God looks at him and says, from where have you come? From where have you come from? And, and, and Satan responded with, from going back and forth on the earth. If he was everywhere at once, if he was over all of our lives at the same time, then he doesn't have to go back and forth on the earth. He is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. And so this tells me that Satan has to make travel arrangements. He is not everywhere at the same time. And he's certainly not attacking all of us at the same time. But there are evil spirits that he controls that that may be tempting us and controlling us at the same time. But it's not always Satan knocking on your door. And though I admit that Satan influences the evil of this world. He's not responsible for every time your car breaks down. He's not responsible for every relationship breakup. It feels good for us just to be able to assign that blame to him, right? He's not responsible for every mishap of your life. We live on a cursed planet. There are just some things that just happen sometimes. But that was from our own doing. That was because humanity sinned against God. We disobeyed God. Yes, he influenced the conversation, but we had to make a choice. 
Satan has thousands of years of experience with dealing with the human race. And he has a good understanding of of how we will react to the events of life. And he will certainly use these things to influence. Notice that word. He will influence our hearts and our minds. The key word is influence. He does not have the power to control. Stop assigning power to Satan. He has no power over the believer's life. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No matter what temptation Satan throws at you, it does not have the power to control you unless you make the decision to let it control you. Satan does not have the ability to control your life. James 4 and 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have dominion over Satan in your life. You do not have to be a victim to Satan. You do not have to fall for his his schemes and his plans against your life. You don't have to fall for his temptation. You've got the ability to overcome Satan because Jesus Christ has overcome Satan and you are bought with the price that Jesus died for your sins and therefore you are not held captive to Satan. But blame is this escape mechanism that we use to try and avoid the consequences. That's why we've become so good at this. The devil made me do it is a mindset. It's an excuse for our own poor choices. And at some point, we just have to take responsibility that it wasn't the devil. I made the choice. I made the choice to drink when I was underage. I made the choice to get back in that car with my friends and get busted a second time. I made the choice to spend the night in jail. I didn't know I was choosing it, but I did. Satan didn't make me do anything. When you're a child of God, Satan can manipulate circumstances, but he can't steal your joy. When you're a child of God, Satan can attack you, but he cannot defeat you. When you are a child of God, Satan can tempt you, but he cannot make you sin. He cannot make you sin. Stop assigning him that power. He does not have that ability over your life. He cannot make you sin. The devil didn't create your income to debt deficit. No, he simply just dangled a carrot out in front of you. Your eyes were bigger than your bank account. That's what happened. And you created your own financial despair, not Satan. The devil didn't create your addiction. He, He simply manipulated the circumstances that eventually broke your spirit. And maybe it's physical pain or it's emotional pain. Whatever it is, you decided to lean on that substance as your crutch instead of leaning on Jesus Christ. You decided that. The devil didn't make you cheat on your spouse. He simply got your mind off of your wedding vows and he made you forget about your spouse and forget about your children. And you decided to cheat on your spouse when you let your guard down and had one too many conversations alone with another man or woman. You did that. Satan does not have the ability to do that, and he will cater 
to, to your circumstances. Because James 1 and 14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan knows your desires more than you know your desires. And he will create opportunities to tempt you with those desires, but he can't make you chase them and go after them. He just puts it out there right in front of you. It's appetizing, it's appealing, and he wants you to take it, but he cannot make you take it. The devil can't make you do anything. He can tempt, he can manipulate, he can even accuse. The Bible says he's an accuser of the brethren. He can, he can just, just flat out lie about you and your reputation, but he cannot cause you to sin. He cannot control you. And as a child of God, we have already been given the victory over our enemy. Understand this, church, listen to me. You have been given victory over Satan. So it's time that we start acting like it. It's time that we start acting like we have victory over him. 1 John 4 and 4, 1 John 4 and 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What you have inside of you as a child of God is greater than the one who is in the world. Satan is in the world. He was picked out of heaven. He's the one in the world and he's just trying to manipulate your life. But you have power over him in Jesus' name. Amen? In closing, I want to share with you the story of a man named Ted. It's not his real name. I have changed the name to protect the innocent and me. I worked at two other churches in my ministry career before I became the lead pastor at Destiny Community Church. And I worked for two wonderful men of God. I have great respect for both of them. It's tough sometimes leading a church. We don't have this here. And, and, and I believe because I, I, I learned from mistakes that others have made and even examples that others have set. But sometimes in a church, you'll have a church boss, a member of the church that um, likes to control things. And, and what's kind of a double whammy with that is, is sometimes they are maybe a person of means. Maybe they have money and they will use that money to try and control the church. I'm telling you, we don't have that here. But there was this one gentleman by the name of Ted that at the church I was on staff at, he would often try and control church leadership with his money. You could see it from a mile away. He knew when to take the pastoral staff out for lunch. He knew when to throw his money around. He knew when to buy little gifts for some of the pastoral staff so that he could stay in good graces with them. But when it came to the big ticket items, when he wanted to throw his money around, this man became very controlling. And as a staff, we all realized this. I'm not going to get into all the details of, of how he would do this, but, but there were moments when he would want to give large sums of money to the church, and then he would want to dictate exactly where that money was going and, and how it was to be spent. Well, we had these large wooden round tables that, that were just a beast to move. 
And as a staff, we, we hated setting these things up. We, just, uh, we despised them, and, and around that time, um, Lifetime came out with these, these white plastic tables that were easy to move. They were, they were so much lighter. And so we were all dreaming as a staff, man, if we could just replace all of those old wooden round tables that are so heavy to carry, if we could replace them, our lives would be so much easier. And, and we were just dreaming of those days. And, and I was even responsible for getting the prices. So I shopped around, got the different prices, and we found out Sam's Club was the best place that we could buy them. Probably still is today. We could, we could buy them in bulk, you know. If I needed one table, nope, I had to buy 25. But um, no, just kidding. But we, we really wanted these tables, and, and Ted found out that we wanted these tables. Now, understand, we were all frustrated with him. And so Ted approached me one Sunday, and he said, Hey, I hear, I hear you're looking for some tables. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Well, I'm willing to buy those tables. And immediately I thought, What's the catch? He said, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to get five quotes. Bring them back to me. I'll decide where we buy these tables. Now, to some of you, that seems very trivial. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? He's about to buy tables, so just do it. And, but there was this control. It, it was borderline demonic of how he just tried to control people. I said, well, I'll bring it up in staff meeting. So I was at staff meeting the next week, and, and I brought it up. And as soon as I brought it up that, that Ted wanted to buy new tables, all the staff, everyone in the room was like, what's the catch? And then I said, looked at my pastor, and I said, he wants, wants us to get five different quotes, bring them back to him, and he'll pick where we buy the tables from. And I had watched this man control different ones and different things around that church but there was this breakthrough moment at that staff meeting sitting at the table my pastor's at one end I'm at the other and 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 I I look at my pastor and my pastor says no I'll tell you what you do and he had never talked this plane about Ted before he said here's here's what we do he said I want you to go back and tell Ted that we're buying them and the staff all kind of perked up really we're about to get rid of these wooden tables we don't have to carry these things around anymore and he said we're buying them he said, we're going to buy these round tables. And he said, then if he wants to reimburse the church, we'll have the receipt in the office and he can come by and write us a check and reimburse the church. But we're not going to get any quotes for him. And it was this joyous moment for me. It felt like a spiritual breakthrough. And to be honest with you, it was. And I don't think Ted ever reimbursed the church. But, but what happened was my pastor in that moment said, we will no longer be controlled by the Spirit. We will no longer be held captive. And I'm at the end of the table going, not today, Ted, not today. Let me tell you, some of you, some of you need to, to develop that mentality for your own life. You need to look the devil square in the eyes and say, Satan, not today. You don't get to control me because you have no control. You can tempt me all you want, but I make my decisions. 
You can dangle the carrot right in front of me, but, but it's no use because I am led by the Spirit of God and I will no longer be controlled by you. Stop assigning blame to him because if you assign blame to Satan, the devil made me do it, then you have to accept that he is the only one that can make you better. And he did nothing, absolutely nothing to forgive you of your sins or bring forgiveness for whatever you've done in your life. He didn't do anything. If you would just, just become spiritually brave enough to confront Satan and say, you no longer control my marriage, you no longer control my children, you no longer control my job and the destiny that God has for me and my occupation. You no longer control any of that. You can't cause me to make a mistake. I'm taking responsibility for my decisions and I'm going to pray and I'm going to be led by God. But Satan, you have no business any longer controlling my mind and my thoughts and my actions. I do not assign you that power anymore. And when you become brave enough spiritually to do that, you're going to notice that Satan is going to go bother somebody else doesn't mean that you're not going to walk through an attack, but the attacks just look different. They will just look different. Satan has no power over your life. Satan has no dominion. You are a child of God. And because of that, Satan is under your feet. God created you higher than he created Satan. Start walking in that. Start acting like a child of God. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.